Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word today. God, thank you for not leaving us to to wonder who you are and how we can be with you, but revealing who you are and how we can be with you through these words. God, we thank you specifically for inspiring Moses to write down the history of your people in this great book of Genesis and even more specifically, we thank you for this account of the dying hours of Jacob so that we could learn more of you and your greatness and even more practically for our lives how to die well. So speak to us today through your word for your glory and our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Jacob is dying. He's 147 years old, so he's, he's had a long, a long life. Even though he looks back and see his days as, as short, it went by quickly for him, he said in chapter 47, but 147, he is old, he is feeble, he uh, doesn't see very well anymore, uh, his mind wanders a bit, which we're going to see in this chapter, and we get to watch him die. It's really what we're doing. We are watching Jacob die. I mentioned this last week, the Bible usually rushes through the death of any of its characters, but it really slows down for the death of Jacob. 75 verses covering four chapters looking at the death of Jacob slows way down as if to say, watch this man die. This is a godly death. How does a godly man end his life? What does he do in his last hours? What kinds of things come out of his mouth in his last hours? How does a godly man transition from one life to the next? From, from his temporary home to his eternal home? What does he do? What does he say? Hebrews 11.21 in the New Testament looks back and describes the death of Jacob this way. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. What an amazing summary of his last moments. And how did he do it? And the author of Hebrews says, by faith. This guy died faithfully. He had faith up until the very last breath. By faith. And what was he doing? Hebrews says. We're going to read about it more, more in more detail. But what does Hebrews say he was doing? At the end of his life, he blessed people. Right? He blesses his sons. Blesses his grandchildren. And as he, he's doing that, he barely has the strength to stand. So he's got his staff, Right? And he has his, his cane. And what is he doing? Hebrews says he's leaning on it, 
bowing his head over his staff in what? Worship. So how does he exit this world? The way you want to exit this world? In worship. In worship. By faith. Thinking about his family, those whom he loves, those whom he had said many years before the Lord God had blessed him with, had given him. Those whom God had blessed him with, he now blesses in his, in his very last hours. So, this is very practical for us, isn't it? This is very practical. Should you or I see death coming, what will you do and what will you say? Many of you will have that luxury. For some, it will be a surprise. No. Didn't see that coming. But for some of you, you're going to know. You're going to grow old. Or you're going to get sick. You're going to have doctors tell you. I think you got so many months. You're going to have a, a timer that's going to be set. And you're going to think about these things. You should think about these things now. Should you have the opportunity to see your last days coming, what are you going to do? What are you going to say? What will be the sum of your life? What will people say that you lived for? And so what needs to be done today? Or what needs to be said today? Are there things that are left Undone, if God were to take you today. Are there things that are left unsaid? Words that are left unsaid? Should God take you today? Don't assume that you've got so many years left. You might not. So, if there's something that you need to do to bring honor to God, you should do it today. If there's something that you should say to honor God, you should say it today. And we see Jacob wrapping up his life in this way. So here he is. Jacob, 147 years old. His eyes are not working well anymore. He may remember the dim eyes of his father some 100 years before when he took advantage of his father and his dim eyes and deceived his father Isaac, which led to, humanly speaking, trouble upon trouble upon trouble for Jacob. As well, here is Jacob with old, worn, and weathered hands. I bring that up because his hands are going to be a focal point in these last hours of his life. Attention is going to be brought to his hands. His hands are important in what we're going to read. He's going to use his hands in important ways. And I wonder what he would have remembered when he looked at his hands. Second to our mouths only, I think, we can look at our hands as being so active in our life. I mean, look at your hands for a minute. Look at your hands. Think about what your hands have been used for. The good. The evil. 
how you've shaken your fist, how maybe you've struck, how maybe you've grabbed hold of things that were not yours to grab hold of, what you clenched that you shouldn't have clenched, and maybe the good that your hands have been used for. Jacob would remember his hands. Well, we remember real early on his hands are mentioned. You remember the first time Jacob's hands are mentioned? When he's being born. He's being born. He was grabbing hold of his brother Esau's ankle. No, me first. Me first. Get back in here. He would have remembered his hands being covered in animal hairs. He sought to deceive his ailing father. His hands that had wrestled with God. His hands that had embraced his mother for the last time. His hands that had embraced his new baby, Benjamin, and his dying wife. His hands that had clung to the bloodied robe of his, he thought, lost son, Joseph. His hands that had embraced the prime minister of Egypt. And now his hands that are going to rest on the heads of his grandchildren. What memories he would have had of these hands. Genesis chapter 48, verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. In chapter 47, Jacob sensed that the end of his life was approaching, right? And so he called his son, Joseph, and he made Joseph promise not to bury his body in Egypt, but rather in Canaan as a symbol of God's promise to give them that land someday. So as the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren and the great-great-grandchildren say, hey, tell us about Grandpa, right? And where, where is Grandpa now? And where is his body? And can we visit him? And they would say, well, he's not here He's buried up in Canaan. Well, tell us about Canaan and why aren't we there? And this would bring up the great promises of God. And so he wanted even his headstone to be in a place that was a marker to his family. This is how much Jacob is thinking about his children and his children's children. He wanted a marker in place to bring their attention back to the faithfulness of God and the great promises that he had made. So Joseph, remember, made the promise, said, Dad, okay, you got it. I will, I will do that. Wherever you want to be buried, that's where I'll bury you. And then presumably he returned to work, most likely instructing his father's attendants to send for him when the end was near. And so here in verse 1, Joseph gets the call. Some of you have had that call. I can remember getting that call. Eric, you need to you need to come home. Looks like this is it. I think your dad's going to die today. 
I remember that phone call. Joseph gets that phone call. Joseph, this is it. If you want to say anything to your dad, if you want to see him again, you need to come down here now. So what does he do? He grabs his boys. Let's go, boys. Go see Grandpa. I think Grandpa's going to die today. And we need to go see him. Verse 2. And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. I love that. You love that when you read that? What gets an old, dying, feeble, weak, bedridden man out of his bed? Grandchildren. Grandchildren get him out of bed. You can imagine those attending to him, right? Jake, no, you, you, need, you need your rest, right? Silly things like that. Like, I don't need my rest. <laughs> I'm just fine, thank you. Clock's winding down here. I want to do everything that I can do. I'm about to enter into eternal rest with Jesus right now. I want to see my grandkids. So he summons his strength sits up. At some point, he stands up and he's leaning, we know from Hebrews, he's leaning on his staff. But the grandchildren are here. Joseph's here. Your boy's here. And his boys are here. Ephraim and and, and Manasseh. And so he summons his strength and he gets out of bed. This is a, a big day for Grandpa and he does not intend to miss it. It's a big day. So he rises himself out of bed and here we go. What will Jacob say? Dying Jacob. What will he say? What will he do? Verse 3. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty. That's a good start. What a great start. Don't you think Jacob at this point is thinking about every word that comes out of his mouth? Do you think there's ever been a time where he was thinking more about what words to say and what words to use? Can you imagine the end of your life when you can barely speak and you don't know how many words you have left to say? What are his first two words? God all Mighty. So if I give out after two words or after one word, at least you get God. God Almighty. He's thinking about every syllable. Every syllable that comes from his mouth. He says, boys, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Listen to what Jacob is going to talk about. All he's going to talk about is God his wife, his kids, 
and his grandkids. That's it. And nothing else is on his radar right now. God, his wife, his kids, and his grandkids. And his starting point is the day that God revealed Himself to him. That's what he just described in verse 3 and 4. He went back to that day when he was fleeing from his brother Esau and God began to reveal Himself to Jacob. And God initiated, as far as Jacob was concerned, His covenant relationship with Jacob and began to make promises to Jacob. And so what Jacob does when his grandchildren come in the room is he begins telling them about the day when God came to him. Right, One day, God woke me up. One day, God woke me up. God revealed Himself to me. He blessed me. He made promises to me. And He has been faithful to me ever since. That is the message that He is going to pass on. It's like this testimony of God's faithfulness in His life. And he begins with, God Almighty one day woke me up, snapped me out of my sin, and began making promises to me, and he has been faithful to me ever since then. He has orchestrated my entire life, and I'm so thankful. In fact, skip down to verse 11. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. So he's looking at his grandkids and saying his starting point is the day that God woke him up, the day that God saved him, if you will, all the way to this day, he says, and God has been orchestrating all of it to where here I am, never thought I'd be here, looking at you, Joseph, not only you, Joseph, but your babies, my grandboys. And it's all, who's he giving credit to? It is all because of God. And he's saying that I have not always been close to God, but God has always been close to me. That's what he's telling his family. I have not always been close to God, but God has always been close to me. God has been faithful. Friends, listen to what he says and listen to what he does not say. He doesn't talk about himself. He doesn't bring out the war medals. He doesn't point to the diplomas on the wall or the degrees. He doesn't start telling old stories about what he had done and what he had accomplished. He doesn't draw any attention to any degree of success in his life. And he doesn't glamorize his life before God. He doesn't even mention his life before God. His starting point is God Almighty. I pray that's all my family thinks of and all my church thinks of when I die. I pray that that's all my family thinks of and that's all the church thinks of when I die. God Almighty. God Almighty. 
Are you interested in making a name for yourself? Are you interested in seeing God's name in lights? God honored and God glorified. Are you just interested in your legacy or God's legacy through you? How will we be remembered? God Almighty. He doesn't ask for a thing. Shares His testimony. God Almighty has been faithful. What else does He say? Verse 5 and 6. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. This is very interesting. What he just said in verse 5 and 6. Jacob adopts his two grandchildren. That's what he just did. And rather forcefully. This is a forceful adoption. They're mine. Those are his words. He adopts his two grandsons. It says, Joseph, these two boys are mine. If you have any more kids, you can keep them. That's what he says, isn't it? But these two boys that you're bringing into me, he adopts them. He says, from now on, these are my boys and they're going to be remembered as my boys and not your boys. That's what he says. If you have any more children from this day forward, you can keep them. You get to have them. But these two boys, what are the words he uses? These two boys are Mine. And here's what I want you to see. Why? Why does Jacob adopt these two boys? It's not to raise them, is it? It's not to raise them. It's certainly not to get anything from them. Why does he adopt these two boys? There's one reason. To bless them. Do you have children? Do you know why you have children? To bless them. If you have children, do you know your children are not for you. You are for your children. Why do we adopt children? To fill a void in our life? I hope not. To complete ourselves? I hope not. To take our focus off of other issues and make us feel better about ourselves? I hope not. We adopt children to bless them. Veritas Church, if and when you can, adopt children. If you can, when you can, 
adopt children. Over 100,000 children just in the foster care system today that need adoptive families just in America. And they're not the only kids that need to be adopted who don't have moms and dads. But if and when you adopt children, adopt them for the reason Jacob adopted his two grandsons, to bless them. Has God given you children? Do you have children? Bless them. Bless them. These two boys are mine, Jacob says. And we see it is not for selfish motives, but rather it is to pass on his blessing to them. Verse 7. As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Have you ever uh, talked with someone who is really old? And there's lots of tangents in the conversation. And they sort of trail off into stories and, and, and memories and you follow them and then, and then you, you come back to what they were originally talking about. You see that's what Jacob is doing here. If we back up to the beginning, he doesn't set out to, let me tell you about Rachel, but as he's looking at Rachel's son and Rachel's grandsons, perhaps even seeing right something of the beauty that first drew him to his wife, Rachel. Here's this little old man, and it takes him back. It's really sweet. And it takes him back to the day that he lost his beloved. A day that is permanently imprinted on him. He remembers the caravan stopping because his beautiful wife was going into labor. And then he remembers her giving birth to his little boy Benjamin. And he remembers holding and embracing Benjamin. And then watching his wife slip away. She died in childbirth. And there he was, I'm sure, hugging them both. <laughs> what an impossible moment. And so he's taken back. And he remembers his, his wife. So I don't think he sets out here to talk about Rachel, but she, she comes to mind. And, and how could she not come to mind for Jacob? Jacob loved Rachel. You remember that? I mean, it's one of the greatest love stories in our entire Bible. Remember how long he worked for her? Or I should say, not worked for her, but worked so that he could marry her? 14 years. That's a long time. 14 years. Says, Laban, I'd like to marry your daughter. Laban says, all right. Tell you what, work for me seven years. Not a problem. Works for... Laban seven years. And then you remember what Laban did? Tricky Laban. Laban had two girls. 
One was Rachel, who was beautiful in form and appearance. Biblical standards, she's the most beautiful woman that is ever mentioned in your Bible. And her sister was not so. Her sister's name meant cow eyes. Now, there's nothing physical in Leah to draw anyone to her. Physically, you would be pushed away from Leah. And Laban tricked Jacob and gave him Leah. He says, hey, I want Rachel. And Laban said, how about another seven years done? Fourteen years. And you remember that verse, gals? Most romantic verse in the entire Bible, right? Chapter 29, verse 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Loved Rachel. And so here he remembers his beloved wife going into labor, giving him his son Benjamin and then dying in childbirth. And I think there's something to notice here for sure. Husbands, do your children know how much you love your wife? Husbands, do your do people know how much you love your wife? I think he loves her. Think so? Maybe? Do your children know how much you love your wife? You have grandchildren? Do your grandchildren know how much you love your wife? How do you talk to your children about your wife? How do you talk to your grandchildren about your wife? I don't think there are many greater things you can do to give your children a sense of security than to dote on their mom. I don't know if there's anything you can do, husbands, to bring more security to your children than to dote on their mom. Do you know what dote is? That's a good word. It means extreme and uncritical fondness. That's a good word. Husbands, do you dote on your wife? And do you dote on your wife in front of your kids? We kind of have these jokes in our home, right? Is I'll, I'll kiss my wife in front of our boys. And they're, it's interesting, right? They're sort of grossed out. <laughs> and they sort of like to see it. So you watch and just like, oh, oh. But what are they doing? Oh, oh, oh. And what's that all about? And they don't go running. They could run. They could run and hide, but they don't not like it that much. That's totally good and normal. They want to know that mom and dad love each other. They want to know that mom's not going anywhere, dad's not going anywhere, that mom and dad are crazy about one another. They want to know that. They want to see that. Husbands, it's one of the greatest gifts you can give your kids. Do they know how much you love your wife? Here's his last words, and here's, here's Jacob in front of his grandboys, in front of his son, and he just trails off. Oh, Rachel. I'm so looking forward, what is he saying, to seeing Rachel. Well, I can't wait to see her. It's been a long time. Verse 8. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? 
And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me to see your offspring also. So here we see a Joseph is gathering his strength. We read that in verse 2. Why is he gathering his strength? Okay, To do a few things with and for his grandchildren. Three that I see real clearly. Number one, to share a testimony of God's faithfulness. We're hearing him do that. Two, to bless them. And three, to kiss and hug them. Here's something else very practical, I think, that should not be overlooked. This is not merely cultural. This is transcultural. This is supracultural. This should apply to every culture. And that is physical affection within a family. His good is right is normal, including physical affection between a dad and his sons and a dad and his grandsons, which is the example here. What does he do to his boys? In a minute, we're going to see that they got off his knee. How old are these boys? They're in their 20s. They're in their 20s. And they're crawling up in Jacob's lap like he's Santa Claus. And what is Jacob doing? And he's saying, come, it might, I only got a, a little bit of breath left. And what is that? I love this. What is one of the things that he wants to do? He wants to hug and kiss his 27-ish year old grandboys. I love that. He wants to kiss them. He wants to hug them. If you haven't done this before in your family, I know that you could kind of weird out your kids at this point. Like, <laughs> oh, Dad's never really done this. So you might want to take it slow. <laughs> but it should be a goal. I know some of you I know some of you men aren't affectionate, and I know that there are there are some real serious reasons why some of you aren't affectionate. And I know that some of you men have been, have been wounded. And I know that some of you men have been abused. And I know that you associate all kinds of things with physical touch from another man. But you should not let that shape you or keep you from being a physically affectionate father. With your girls and your boys. It might come easier for some of you with your girls, and it might feel weird with your boys, but it shouldn't feel weird with your boys. It shouldn't. They're your boys. They're your boys. You should hug them. You should kiss them. If you haven't, maybe, maybe start with a side hug if you're new to this. <laughs> Just give your daughter a side hug. Just give your son a side hug. You start slow. Don't freak them out. Just start slow. Uh, the Myers family is not a, what I would call a physically affectionate family. But we're extremely, I, what I, let me clarify, outside the walls of our home. But inside the walls of our home, we're a very physically affectionate family. Outside the walls, not so much. No one would say that we're like huggy people. I'm not really a hugger. I love you. I'll hug you. But I'm not really a hugger. 
I see in these other countries where people say hello to one another and they kiss each other on the cheek. This totally grosses me out. <laughs> I, I could never do that. I would feel so uncomfortable. I would feel so awkward. That is a cultural thing, I think. But within the walls, it's different. Listen, I've had, I share this, right, but I've had a lot of and do have many weaknesses as a father, and I hope you hear those come through in my sermon illustrations as well. A lot of weaknesses as a father that I am painfully aware of. But this is a strength in the Myers family. This is a strength. This is not strange to us. We are a physically affectionate family. I asked my boys this week, actually on the way home from school, as I was preparing for the sermon and thinking about it, I thought I should ask them. I said, boys, does it, does it ever embarrass you? Or make you feel awkward when dad kisses you? Because I do. I kiss him on the head all the time. And I, I kiss him in public and it doesn't really matter. And I, I said, how does that make you feel? Does that, does that embarrass you or make you feel awkward or, or uncomfortable like dad? And I was very pleased with the answer. I said, no, no. Absolutely not. I said, you sure? I said, I don't plan to stop. <laughs> I said, I think it's just, that's how I'm wired. And, and I, plan to, I plan to kiss you a lot and your whole life. I mean, when you're, as long as I'm alive, no matter how old you are, I plan to still, you know, when I see you, to grab the back of your neck and, and pull your head in, I'm, I'm going to kiss you. And I'm, and I'm going to do that in front of people. And um, are you okay with that? I said, yeah. So we got an agreement. I said, yeah, we're totally okay with that, Dad. I said, okay, good. Good. We're going to keep doing that. It is sad, friends. We live in such a perverted world. It's sad that physical affection has to come under so much suspicion and often it rightfully does. But this, what we see here in Genesis chapter 48, is appropriate physical affection. Totally appropriate and totally godly. And it is necessary. So real simply, right? Tell your kids you love them. Kiss your kids. Hug your kids. And if you haven't, start. They need to hear you say, I love you. Now, some of you may think, I'm not, I'm not verbal. Right? You're not verbal. You're not physical. You're not... No. Listen, there is not an excuse for this. Oh, my kids know that they love me. I show them that I love them by my actions. Well, good, you should. But I really want to challenge you. I really want to challenge you. Do your children hear you say, I love you. I love you. I will never stop loving you. You can do anything and I will love you. I will always love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. If you haven't done that, I want to challenge you to start. I love you. Jacob is a good example at the end of his life here. Let's keep going. Verse 12. Then Joseph removed them from his knees. See, there they are up on the knees. Then Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. So here it is. Jacob is going to bless now his grandchildren. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim, uh, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand. This is going to get kind of confusing. And brought them near him. 
And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. For Manasseh was the firstborn. So here's what just happened. Joseph um, has got his boys here, and he knows, okay, dad's going to bless them. So Joseph positions his sons in a certain way before his ailing father, who he knows probably can't see them. And so he positions them uh, in a specific way. And the way he positions them is that he places Manasseh before Jacob's right hand and Ephraim before Jacob's left hand. And the reason is because Manasseh is the firstborn. And that was significant in this family. If you were the firstborn, you were entitled to what was called the birthright. And part of having that birthright as the firstborn was you got a special blessing, a distinct blessing from the father. So Manasseh is the firstborn. So Joseph presents Manasseh before Jacob's right hand. And then, and then Jacob does this. Skip down. We'll come back to the blessing, but skip down. In verse 17, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. I think it's kind of funny. It's like, Dad, what the heck are you doing? You're screwing this up. Right? You're getting this. So he goes and grabs his dad's hand, and he's going he's gonna to switch them, making sure he does it right. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. And I love this. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. What did he just say? I'm not stupid. <laughs> I'm, I'm not blind yet. Hey, I know my boys here. I know, my son, I know. He refused. He said, no, this is how we're going to do it. He also shall become a people, Manasseh that is, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. We don't know exactly why. We can't be sure why he did this, why he chose to not pass on the birthright, the special blessing to the firstborn. But this was the same for Joseph. Joseph had the birthright, and he was not the firstborn. First Chronicles 5, 1 and 2 reflects on that. The sons of Reuben, Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob, but he did not get the birthright. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the sons of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his brothers and a chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. And let's finish this out and we'll come back to the blessing itself. So verse 20, he blessed them that day saying, by you Israel will pronounce blessings saying, God, Make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. And then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. So he says to Joseph in these closing moments, 
You must trust God with your life. And you must trust God with your children's lives. Ephraim and Manasseh. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Jacob says to Joseph, Joseph, you're going to need to do that for your life. You need to trust God as I've trusted God. You need to trust God with your life and you also need to trust God with your children's lives. You need to entrust your children to God. Why? What's the testimony Jacob has given? Because God is faithful. Now let's finish by looking at the blessing. Go back to verse 15 and 16. What is it that Jacob says in this blessing? As he puts his hands on his two grandboys. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, and the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Look back at verse 15. The last sentence. The God who has been my shepherd. And basically what he says in his blessing is, God has been my shepherd my whole life. And may He be your shepherd, Joseph. And may He be shepherd over your boys as well. God as a shepherd. If you've been a Christian for any significant amount of time, this is not a surprising metaphor for you, right? You know that God is pictured as a a great shepherd, a a faithful shepherd, a, a good shepherd, the chief shepherd. But this, significant, because this is the first time in your Bible that God is referred to as a shepherd. Before David called God his shepherd, Jacob called God his shepherd. Most of us are familiar with the 23rd Psalm. We think it was maybe David's idea. The Lord is my shepherd. But Jacob was a shepherd before, long before David was a shepherd. And Jacob recognized that as he was a shepherd to his flock and cared for his flock, that that's exactly what God had done for him his entire life. It's all over your Bible that the Lord is our shepherd. Psalm 81, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you you who lead Joseph like a flock. Isaiah 40.11, listen to this portrait of our shepherd. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And remember what Jesus preaches in John chapter 10 as He self-identifies Himself as the Good Shepherd. I am the Good Shepherd. I know My own and My own know Me. Just as the Father knows Me and I know the Father, and I lay down My life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to My voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd, 
First Peter 2.25 For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. It's Jesus. And then finally, Hebrews 13 at the very end of that letter. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So how will we die? We're going to see more in weeks to come as Jacob's death is drawn out for us. But we should begin asking the question, how how will we die? What will be the state of our life when we die? Therefore, how will we live today? How shall we live? What shall we say? What will be the things that we do today? What will be the things that we say today? If and when we have children, what will we say to our children? What will we do with our children? Jacob is an example for us. Now, some of you I know, you don't have children yet. Some of you are children. And listen, it is good for you to think now. What will you do with your children? How will you speak to your children? What will you say to your children? Prepare. Now I know that there is also undoubtedly some here today who when you hear this sermon, it feels hopeless. And it brings a distinct sting because there are things that you have not done and there are words that you have not said and it feels like you're out of time. It's too late. I didn't do what I should have done. I didn't say what I should have done. Now it is simple to understand what you should do from this day forward. It's not simple to do, but simple to understand. You should start now. You should start now. And the only difference for you is that starting now, it just needs to be preceded with, I'm sorry. It really is that simple. Now, some of you need to go to people because you haven't done this well and you haven't spoken well. And you need to start by saying, I'm really sorry. I should have done this differently. Will you forgive me? but I want to start now. You're not in control of how that is received, but you can bring honor and glory to God by being faithful and obedient to Him and prayerfully entrusting any results to Him. Some of you can hear certain sermons and hear certain applications and and you can be tempted to feel like a, a, a carton of spoiled milk. 
well, it's just too late. I'm done. Just pull me off the shelf and, and throw me away. I'm not useful anymore. I'm past the, the pull date. And uh, Satan, I think, would like you to think that there's nothing for you to do but go home and mourn. Now listen, you may need to have some mourning. And there may be some mourning. But friends, listen. God's grace meets you where you are, not where you should be. God's grace is not just available to those who are where they should be. God's grace is for you wherever you are right now. Frankly, God's grace is not for those who have done really well. God's grace is for those who have not done this well. Remember, Jesus said as much. Right? Sarcastically. Well, I haven't come for all of you who are doing just fine. I've come for the sick. What was He sarcastically saying? You just think you don't need Me. You need me, and you're in trouble, and you're sinful, but you don't think so, so I'm not here for you, apparently. I'm here for the sick. I'm here for those who acknowledge, listen, I have screwed it up. I have totally blown it. For days, years, decades, I've totally screwed this up. Totally blown it. No excuse. Nothing. Here I am. And God's grace can meet you right there. Right there. You just need more helpings of it. just need some extra helpings. That's what it is. Take two helpings, why don't you? Two helpings of grace. One helping of forgiveness for the past you wish you could redo. And one helping of grace for strength from here forward to do what you ought to do. All of grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that now you would strike our hearts with the truth of your word. God, that all of us would, would bring our sin to you, would bring our regret to you, would bring our failures to you, and that we would all acknowledge that we are miserable sinners in need of your mercy and your grace. God, I pray that no one would feel the hopelessness now of thinking that the story is over. God, I pray that You would encourage and embolden them and give them strength and give them hope. That they would mourn to You. They would see it as a good thing to be contrite. A good thing to mourn over their sins and over their regrets. But then, God, I pray that You would bring truth of Your forgiveness and the cleansing that can be had in Christ. And that You would help some here today to move forward now for their good and Your glory and the good of others. And that that would be a testimony of Your work in them and through them. God, we pray that the rest of our worship would be sweet to You. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.